My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And um, we're just starting a brand new series looking at the book of Acts, and so we're glad that you can join in uh, with us as we start that off. But I want you to actually turn and talk to your neighbors, first of all, and I want you to talk about your favorite food. So I don't care what, how old you are or how young you are, everyone's got a favorite food. So turn to your neighbor and talk about what is your favorite food. Okay, it sounds like some of you maybe have more than one favorite food by the volume of that. I love peanut butter. Anybody else? And I, I know I'm kind of bucking the trend because I've recently converted to Skippy after many years of Jif, and I guess Jif is like peanut butter supreme out there, but Skippy, all natural, I'm trying to cut down on my sugar so I get half the sugar, just the same amount of fat when I eat this. I love the smell of it. I love the taste of it. And if I was a real like peanut butter commando, I would like to start by trying to convince all of you to also love peanut butter. But I'm guessing there's maybe a number that already... How many of you love peanut butter? All right, I got a good receptive audience. But if I was going to try to persuade you to love peanut butter, I could look at some experts in persuasion to try to learn how to do that. And one of the things that they suggest that we do is that we first give you like an experience or a taste. So one thing I might do to help you learn to love peanut butter is I maybe just give you all a little spoonful of this and give you a little taste of it. That's one way to do it. Or they might coach me to tell you the benefits of eating peanut butter. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the health benefits are for eating this, but it tastes good, right? So I could maybe try to persuade you that way. Or what I could do is I could maybe bring in an expert. Uh, people who study persuasion say if there is an expert opinion on the greatness of peanut butter, that would be persuasive for many of you. So I could bring that in. Others, uh, ways to kind of persuade you might be to tell you about how many other people eat peanut butter because if you find that a lot of people are actually eating this, you might be more inclined to eat it as well. But the experts in persuasion tell me that there's one way to influence you that has more power than any other way to influence you. Anybody want to dare guess what, what would be the most influential way for me to try to talk you into loving peanut butter? According to the persuasion experts, the most powerful thing I could do is I could get you to like me and I could like you. That if we had some kind of common ground or some similarity, something that we hold in common that we go, oh, you know, well, you got that common interest, you might love peanut butter too. And it's actually, these experts actually say it doesn't matter how big or small this thing is. I can say, you know, are you also Cardinals fans? Or you grew up in Des Moines? Or you love to garden? You might love peanut butter too. That's how they say it works, if I can just get that kind of thing. So we have a little challenge with us today because the burning question is actually not about loving peanut butter. The burning question that I want to raise today is actually about loving Jesus and actually telling other people about our love for Jesus. And the little problem that we have with this is that uh, we Christians who are called to tell other people about Jesus get a bum rap in this particular area, that there are many people who really don't like us. So they don't want to hear what we have to say. They're not very easily persuaded. We have little inish or diminishing influence. So I want you to think about that while I show you this one little video clip. So watch this little clip. My savior. Good guy. Um, love, compassion, um, diversity. An Easter, loving, bearded. Kind. Got a good op opinion of Jesus Christ, that's for sure. Excellent man, wonderful. 
Sure. It had a religion after him. My savior. Actually, Jesus was the first punk rocker. Yeah? Yeah. He's, he's pretty cool, and I like him a lot. Savior. Black. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I think it's good. Because it's Jesus. What else would you think of? Um, definitely um, altruistic philanthropy. Loving, peaceful, sincere. Out of touch. Hopeful. Yeah. On their part. They're hoping for something they're not going to uh, get, I believe. Um, psycho. Uneducated. Backward. The South. I think of somebody that's possibly just a little bit, um, a little bit overboard, a little bit extreme. My Uncle Bob. Um, conservative. White. Fanatical. Oh. Bible thumpers. Crazy. <laughs> People who wear white and, like, kind of glow, but are kind of freaky. Okay. Yeah. And, um, Texas? I think I think there's a lot of stig- stigmas attached to that word. I can't answer that. <laughs> Crazy. Okay. Frightening. Yeah? Yeah. I just, overpowering. Overpowering. Yeah. You don't want to know. Somewhat scary. Um, maybe a little rigid in their, in their dogma and their philosophy. Oh, um, nothing too good. So if our goal is to try to influence others as Christians about Jesus, uh, they like Jesus, but they, it seems like they got a problem with us, and I'm just so thankful that nobody came in here this morning glowing, because then I was going to have to have a big apology about that. There's some interesting research on this. One of the guys who's really dug into this uh, recently has discovered this. Half of the people in America think people of faith are part of the problem in our world and not part of the solution. So just think about that for a minute. Before we even talk to anybody about Jesus, 50% of the people we talk to are already suspicious of us. And they think we're not bringing something that's good and valuable and helpful and loving and kind and compassionate. They think we're causing a problem. The two words that came up most often in this research, irrelevant or extreme, which you heard several people in the video comment on, that Christians are perceived as fanatics. And yet people are interested in Jesus, which is the good news. And so the question that I have, the burning question I have is, how do we talk about the person we love to a world that maybe isn't so interested in hearing from us about that person. And in order for us to like do this little research project, this study, we're going to look at a book, the book of Acts in the Bible, which is actually about people who um, turn the world upside down, a handful of disciples who were empowered by God's Spirit to turn the world upside down They had such powerful influence. I thought it would be helpful for us over the course of next several weeks to look at these disciples and figure out how did they do that kind of influence? How did they share Jesus with people in the world? And so to do that, I would like to invite you to actually open up your Bibles and look at the very first chapter in this book, the book of Acts. So we're looking at Acts chapter 1. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the chairs. You can grab one of those if you want to read along with me. I think that's helpful sometimes. Or bring it up on your phone or... uh, iPad or something that you've got with you, or, or listen as I read it. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1. So this is in the New Testament, 
After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the fifth book in to the, to the New Testament part of our Bibles. Acts chapter 1. And he starts by referring to uh, another book that he wrote. The guy who wrote the book of Acts is a guy named Luke, who actually wrote the Gospel of Luke. And this little section of Scripture we're going to look at is kind of like a hinge between the Gospels, the story of what Jesus did while he was here, and what happened after Jesus left. And we're kind of right at that turning point here in this first chapter. So I want you to listen to that. Listen for that while I'm reading this. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven and after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the disciples he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very sight into a cloud, and then he was hidden from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from heaven, from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then they all returned to Jerusalem. This is God's word, and it is true, and we can rely on it. So part one of this story of Jesus describes the life of a disciple before Jesus was ascended into heaven before Jesus left them. And it describes the disciples as witnesses. It says that they watched Jesus. They saw the kinds of things that he did. And they saw all kinds of things. I just want to focus on three quick things that they witnessed while Jesus was here on earth. The first thing that they witnessed was they witnessed the kingdom of God coming to earth. Um, Some of us use the Lord's Prayer as one of our prayers. We pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The disciples who walked with Jesus saw the kingdom of God come to earth. And Jesus described this coming kingdom like this. This is from Luke chapter 4. Jesus announced that the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus did not just announce this coming kingdom, he actually demonstrated it. So that as Jesus walked on the earth, the blind received sight, the sick were healed, the hungry were fed, the oppressed were set free, those who were grieving were comforted. The kingdom of God broke into the world so that the disciples who followed Jesus witnessed this. They could see these things. And as they saw these things, they recognized that the power of God has come through Jesus and it's transforming the world. It's making the world a better place. It's bringing order out of chaos. It's bringing health out of sickness. It's bringing strength out of weakness. The kingdom of God was breaking in. And these individuals witnessed 
the power of God breaking into the world. But that's not the only thing they witnessed. They also witnessed the love of God transforming the world. Now, the Bible talks about this as kind of the law of love. And on more than one occasion, Jesus was cornered by some lawyers who wanted to kind of trick Jesus with this very question. They would ask him, what is the greatest law or what is the greatest commandment? Because, you know, God has given a whole bunch of commandments and they wanted to know what Jesus would, how he would prioritize them. And I think the question they're really trying to get to in this is, what is the most important thing to God? If, if we took all of God's laws and boiled it to one thing, what would God say? And Jesus answered with what we call the great commandment. And this is from Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you were going to boil down what is most important to God, Jesus says, love. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. And Jesus, again, did not just proclaim this. He demonstrated it. He lived it out. And the disciples who were walking with them witnessed this so that Jesus was constantly pouring out compassion and kindness and care and gentleness, constantly welcoming the stranger, constantly loving people who were difficult to love, embracing the outcast. Those people who were not welcome in any other part of society were welcomed by Jesus. He loved them. And the disciples witnessed this part of what happened when they lived and walked with Jesus while Jesus was with them. And then they saw something else. They saw this same Jesus arrested and falsely condemned and nailed to a cross. And they watched him die. And they watched him buried in a tomb. And three days later, they discovered an empty tomb. And then for 40 days, we're told, they walked with this same Jesus who was alive again. And they heard him continue to talk about God's love and God's kingdom breaking into this world. They experienced this. They were witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what the disciples did in part one when Jesus was here walking on earth. And Luke kind of summarizes this whole part one up at the end of his book, Luke chapter 24. He says this, Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning right here in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So one aspect of being a disciple is we look at Jesus and we watch what he said and we watch what he did. We are witnesses. That's what disciples do before Jesus leaves. Part two is what happens after Jesus leaves. And this brings us into the rest of the book of Acts. That this, something's changed. They just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. He's not going to be with them anymore. Now how are they going to function as disciples? They're not going to witness Jesus in public and in person anymore. Something else is going to happen. And in part two, what we do discover, here's a quick summary of the whole book. We discover that the ministry of Jesus continues from heaven. That the kingdom of God continues to break in by the power of the Holy Spirit through the disciples that were left behind. They continue to do the same things that Jesus did when he was here. So we see God's kingdom breaking in. We see them loving people. We see them transforming the world by the power of God at work in them. But I do have to admit that when I was studying this particular chapter, the very beginning of this kind of adventure surprised me. Because right after Jesus is taken up to heaven... 
They get this little commandment about what they're supposed to do next. Listen to this. This is verse 4 again. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when I read this, it seems like the first thing a good disciple does after Jesus is gone is wait. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. These group of men and women who walked with Jesus, witnessed the coming of God's kingdom, saw the power of God break in, saw Jesus crucified, dead, buried, and risen again, walked with Jesus for 40 days, and now they have to wait. I don't know how they could even do it. I have them pictured more like the football team at the locker room halftime pep talk, like they should be bursting out of the room, going to transform the world and change everything. But instead, Jesus says, wait a minute. I really expected Jesus to turn them loose in a different way. But it's telling me something about the life of a disciple after Jesus is taken up. It's powered by something different. And I actually read about this in a few verses later in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. These verses seem to be talking about some kind of explosion that's going to happen. And these disciples are supposed to just wait until this explosion happens. Actually, the word describing the power that will come upon these disciples is the same word we would use for dynamite. So Jesus is saying, go, wait, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll explode. That's what they're supposed to wait for. And once they explode with the power of the Holy Spirit, then they become witnesses of what Jesus has done. This is actually kind of encouraging to me because I was looking at the disciples in part one and comparing them to what happens in part two. So another little sneak preview. In part one, many of us know the disciples were often timid and they were often filled with fear and doubt. And I was going to describe them as idiots, but that seemed like just a little bit too strong. But you know, they were slow on the uptake and they often failed to get what Jesus was doing, and they often failed to accomplish the things that Jesus asked them to accomplish. But we see later, in part two, that these disciples go out and they, they do everything that Jesus did. They feed the hungry, they heal the sick, they restore sight to the blind, they bring God's kingdom in power. What's the difference? The difference is, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you explode. You receive power. The, thing that, uh, the other thing that seems consistent throughout the book of Acts as this part two unfolds is that they wait and they explode. And whether they're waiting or exploding, there's something defining them. And that thing that defines them is love. And that's the one thing that seems constant. So they're constantly demonstrating the love of God in every interaction. So that these kinds of descriptions are very common throughout the book of Acts. This is from Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of them had possessions that were their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's grace was so powerfully at work on all of them that there was no needy person among them. That's a picture of love. There's actually a message translation. I really like the way they brought this to light in chapter 4. They said, no one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. Isn't that a picture of someone who loves their neighbor? someone who loves their community. I've been given something and I go, oh, that's not just for me, that's for you. I can't keep that to myself. I want to share it with everybody who I can. 
And so they shared it with everyone so that there was no needy person among them. This is what disciples do. Disciples love. And whether they're in a waiting mode or whether they're in an exploding mode, it seems like it's very consistent. They keep loving. So after Jesus left the disciples, they went and they told other people about their, what they had witnessed. They told other people about Jesus. And they did it with great influence. So that another very common description, at least in the early part of the book of Acts, is this. The Lord added daily to their number. Every day more people said, I want to know about Jesus and I want to be a follower of Jesus. Every day they had great influence. And it seems to me it comes down to they loved God and they loved their neighbor. They brought God's kingdom to earth. And it changed everything. It was a complete game changer. So over the next couple months, this is what we want to do. We actually want to dig real deep into this concept. We're going to go throughout the book of Acts, and we're going to try to figure out what does it mean to love? And since we're in Cedar Rapids, most of us, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us to love Cedar Rapids? And how can we do that? And we actually uh, read some other interesting um, research recently about our neighbors. And the, the question was, can you name your eight closest neighbors, the people whose houses are actually closest to your own house? And many people could not do it. They could not, not actually name. So the question was, well, how can you love someone you don't know? And so we got a little tool that we're going to give out to try to help you. And we've got some ushers, some people who are going to help us with that. You guys can spring into action right now, and anybody else who can help bail them out. What we're doing is we've got these little fridge magnets And every family can take one if you'd like to participate. If you don't want to participate, then just let it pass by. But if you're willing to participate, this is what we'd like you to do. There's a little house in the middle, and that represents your home. And then there's eight blank spaces around it. That represents the eight people who live closest to you. And the question is, do you know them? Do you know their names? And do you know anything about them? And what we'd like you to do is we'd like you simply to write the names of your neighbors on this magnet and put it on your fridge the names of your eight closest neighbors. And we think that this could be a really practical tool for us as we figure out how to love Cedar Rapids. What if the question, or what if the vision for loving your neighbor was literally loving the person who lived next to you, loving your neighbor? What would that look like? So feel free to grab these. They're really thin, so make sure you you get one and then we'll have enough to pass around to everybody. But we'd just like to invite you to take that home and, and use that tool in that way. And this part might be hard, but what we want you to do is actually just put the names of your neighbors on there, put it on your fridge, and then we want you to wait. Um, We're not going to tell you to do anything else about that magnet today. Put it on your fridge and wait. Now, if the Holy Spirit comes along and like prompts you to do something and you're supposed to go explode on one of your neighbors, then you do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. But there was one other thing the disciples did in chapter 1 of Acts as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. It said they prayed constantly. So put this on your fridge with the names of your neighbors and pray. And then if the Holy Spirit happens to prompt you to do something, then you follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So I've got one last question I wanted to ask you, and that's this. Can you tell me what all these things have in common? Bread, 
bagels, English muffins, pancakes, waffles, crackers, bananas, apples, celery, ice cream, chocolate, and scotcheroos. Any ideas? This is a list of all the delivery systems for peanut butter. In fact, Mary knows that I basically look at all breakfast food as a potential delivery system for peanut butter. So whatever you can put peanut butter on, then you can have it for breakfast. Um, And of course, I didn't mention spoon. And since I mentioned this in the first service, I've had some guy came up to me after the first service. Peanut butter and hot dogs. He swears by it, so I'm telling you, if you want to try it. Of course, there's no better delivery system than just a spoon and just eat it straight up. And then I did this in the first service and couldn't finish talking to them, so I'm going to wait on this thing. Disciples of Jesus, what's one thing we all have in common? We're all delivery systems for God's love. And there's probably an infinite number of ways for us to deliver that love. This is what we want to explore over the next several weeks. We're just inviting you to think that one place you might want to deliver God's love is to the persons who live right next to you. Let's pray about that. Dear God, we come to you this morning, and I just give you thanks, God, for these good people and for their willingness to come here and celebrate your love and to worship together with us and to hear your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is hovering around this place to ignite us and to potentially explode us with your love and that we might learn how we can do that in a way that really influences our city. We would like to see, God, the city of Cedar Rapids transformed. God, if we could turn this place upside down by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you bring that about? And in the meantime, God, help us to listen well, to to wait patiently, and then to follow you as you lead us. And God, I pray, God, for anybody who's here today who maybe has a special need and their need is for your kingdom to come breaking into their life. They need to know your love. They need to know the power of forgiveness. They need healing. They need the the power of reconciliation. They need to have something broken in their world fixed. They need to have something set right that's wrong. God, you want to bring your kingdom to earth just as it is in heaven. And so, God, I pray that you'll begin to reveal the ways that you can accomplish that and that you'll meet each one of us right where we're at to do that. So God, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity that we've had to gather and we exalt you as the one who is worthy of all of our worship and praise and we thank you for hearing our prayers and for answering them in Jesus' name, amen.